Will you please welcome our guest moderator, Ready One DJ, Edith Bowman. Hi. Uh, good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming along tonight. Um, this is a, a bit of a special treat tonight because as well as uh, us speaking, you guys asking questions to, to Michael, he's also going to do a bit of reading from, from his book, Brazil. So I kind of uh, look at it as a bit of being read a bedtime story from Michael Palin, which I think is probably a dream come true, to be honest, for a lot of us. Um, for those of you who haven't seen the series that uh, finished, I think, a couple of weeks ago um, uh, on, on BBC, four-part series, Brazil, uh, an incredible journey, um, and an incredible journey that Michael's been on over the past 25 years in this guise as this... Uh, I don't know, this, this kind of intrepid explorer who very much brings these countries and places in the world to us uh, as if we're with him on that journey as well. And I think that's one of the huge appeals to, to how he does these programmes. So before we welcome him on, let's just take a, a clip and have a look at uh, a, a short clip from the series. With the sounds of Gabby's Technobrega still ringing in my ears, I head south from Belen up one of the major tributaries of the Amazon the Xingu River. It runs through one of the most protected areas in Brazil. Sixty years ago, a reservation for the ten tribes of the Upper Xingu was created. In contrast to the Anamami, their land is more accessible, so it's been a constant fight against incursions. Today, only those invited by the tribes themselves are allowed to enter. I've no idea what I shall find or how I'll be received. My legs are wobbly. <laughs> Hello. Hi. We've been invited here by the Wauja people, of whom there are fewer than 500 left in the world. The Wauja are feared warriors, renowned for their wrestling skills, but they're equally well known for their elaborate rituals. I'm not absolutely sure if this is a war dance or a welcome. Happily, it turns out to be both. Fantastic, thank you, thank you. Their elaborate body decorations and the feathers they use on their arms and ears are beautiful, but to a newcomer, quite mystifying, as is the purpose of the elaborate dances they've laid on. When you stepped off that plane, were you a bit like, do you ever feel intimidated when you, 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 know, you come across these incredible collections? You of honestly don't know what you're going to find, <laughs> which to me is really the great joy of doing what I do. Is that I, I mean, wherever I am, even if I'm in the centre of Rio going to a favela or San Paolo, you're still not quite sure exactly what's going to happen. And there, you just hope for the best, really. I mean, um, I hope you don't make a terrible, terrible gaffe, <laughs> you know, and start to dance with them or do something like, awful like that. So yeah. I, I just wait and see what they're going to do. Where, where and when did this curiosity with, with the world begin? I mean, I, I read that it's, as a child, you wanted to be an explorer. Is that... 
yeah, so, where the seed of it lies. That was my that was my ambition to be an explorer. I kind of wrote that, and then we, you know, we ask you at school, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, it was either an airline pilot or an explorer. An airline pilot, I couldn't do math, so that was out the window. But explorer, I thought, yeah, I could do that. And then every time I looked, everywhere had been explored, you know, as soon as you read, someone, oh, someone's found the source of the Amazon, someone's found the source of the Nile. The whole world had been, had been mapped. But um, I still found an extraordinary appeal in, in the un, unvisited places. I just felt I've got to go and see what the Ngorongoro crater looks like, just because it's a great name and the Victoria Falls and, 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 you know, to go to North and South Poles because I'd read so many stories about the adventures there, about the struggle for people to get there. People gave their lives to get to these places and I had to kind of, I had just this, I really felt I've got to find out what they're like, what these places are like. And of course, they're utterly miserable and you understand why Scott said when he got to the South Pole, my God, this is an awful place. <laughs> he was absolutely right. What was the attraction to Brazil? What, what drew you there? Um, well, suddenly everyone was going to be, you know, everyone was beginning to talk about Brazil. In fact, that was the World Cup in 2014. In 2016, it, it's the Olympics. And at the same time, you've got this new burgeoning superpower economically that everyone's talking about. You know, it's, it's economies leapfrogged over the UK to become sixth biggest in the world. I thought, I don't know anything about this place. And it's obviously going to be talked about a lot in the next few years. So it was curiosity and a desire to get in there first. Is it, is it a case as well when, when you go on these incredible journeys that you're, I don't know, you're trying to question the preconceptions that people have of the people, the cultures and the country itself to yeah. kind of, you know, get to a truth about those? Well, it is about exploring still. I mean, not physically exploring. Most of the places I go to now have been visited, although I'm, I'm sure some of the places in the in the Amazon rainforest have never been visited yeah. by anybody. And there are still some tribes there who have not yet been contacted. But it's just really to explore for yourself. I think you get a lot of preconceived ideas about places from the media, from uh, politicians. Uh, you know, very often there's a feeling that the world is, is in a lot of places that are, that are disunited and continually sort of fighting each other. Whereas in my experience, uh, and it still goes on, I found it in Brazil, people are far more concerned to work together and act together. Um, there's a great feeling for unity, actually. People are interested in, in meeting people from another country. They're all fascinated. And I've been, to, I've been to some difficult areas. I've been to Pakistan after the 9-11. Um, yeah. And, you know, they weren't all shouting as they do on television when the cameras are there, they were actually quite interested. What are you, you, know, what are you doing? What do you make of it? What's happening out there? Mm. Where are you from? How, how many children have you got? You know? Is your yeah. wife here? <laughs> I don't know <laughs> why I always run to see my does wife. Does she ever get to travel with you? Oh, no. <laughs> no, no, Edith. I say no, darling. No. Actually, she, she is really not an adventurous traveller. I mean, she mm. loves to travel and we go to, say, a city in Europe or we'll, we'll take some time off in New York. Um, but, you know, it's just, it, it, it's, it's, it's really difficult to take any member of the family on a thing like this. It's like a commando expedition filming. You've got so much to do all day. Um, you wouldn't have time to talk to them, really. <laughs> and actually, I think, I, I have to say, I think my wife quite enjoys me going away. <laughs> She's Peace always sending me ma maps and atlases and <laughs> things like that. Yes, well, I've got another atlas for Christmas, yes. The place is marked where you've never been. <laughs> 
Are, is yeah. there? Do you, do you have a wish list? I mean, you've you've you know this this incredible career yeah. outside the career that we you know we first yeah. fell in love with you for. It's kind of it's been an amazing thing and places that you've been. But do you have do you have a list of places that are still on the to visit list? Well, lots of places. You know, I mean, I suppose near the top of the list are some of the countries in the Middle East because I've never been to like Iran. Great history there. Uh, Iraq even, you know, where the first cities in the world grew up. Mm. Um, Syria. They're all just places that are not, not the easiest places to get to now. Yeah. But I'm deeply curious about them. And I'd love to go there because I hate there being a kind of feeling that you shouldn't go, you know, some prohibition. It's too dangerous. You yeah. know, if, if soldiers can go, then, you know, I can go, I feel. Yeah. Be nice to everybody and say hello, everyone. <laughs> you know, I don't want to kill you. I'm, I'm your friend. Boom, that'd be the end of it. But what a way to go. What a way to go. <laughs> um, <laughs> Palin blags his way around the Syria. Middle East. Yeah. With, with this program, Brazil was the first series that you was, was just was one country that you've yes. done. Yeah. And I guess that's testament to the vastness and the diversity of, yeah. of, of what that country has to offer. And a year, is that right? That the program kind yeah, of took yeah to make? it took about four months altogether four separate trips out yeah. there no it's huge and I thought well it's got to do a minimum of four programs just to begin to cover this vast country mm. and they all fell into place quite nicely because there's the northeast by the sea if you like where very African um, Brazil very exciting very lively fantastic food entertainment noisy great music. Then there's a the vast silent interior where very, very few people live. But it's absolutely massive, thousands of miles of rainforest. The Amazon River system, I think it's like over 20%, 22% of the world's fresh water. The world's fresh water is in the Amazon basin. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's, it's a huge area. And then Rio, of course, has its own buzz. And we also did the, the mining area, very, very important in north of Rio, because that's where the money for Brazil came from and they're still coming from. They've got so many minerals. Going, mm. That's where they're making their money, selling it all to China. And then the South, which is European Brazil. And, and it's very odd. It's, it is a bit like Europe. And, and it, it's all very Brazilian, apart from this one bit where there was a German, German, the German yeah. town in Blumenau. <laughs> yeah. It's all entirely built of half-timbered houses. Later hosing and all. Even yeah. the town hall was a chalet about seven stories high. <laughs> very bizarre. But they, they want to stay German. I mean, they like being in Brazil, but they want to keep their language. And the Brazilians are very, it's a very tolerant country, actually, because these guys are all, I mean, the, the children can go to school in that area, and if they want to learn German, they can. Mm. And the Brazilian education authorities make sure that they can. So it's one of the good things about Brazil I, I like. It's a very, very tolerant country, in a way. And in terms of the book and, and the, the, the four-part yeah. series, you're, you're writing... You're writing notes the whole time for the book. You know, you've got yeah. that in your, your head, haven't yeah. you, as you're going through. Yeah, and I is do. it a different journey in the book than it is Yes. in the It, uh, in it the is, really. I mean, it, it covers the same ground, obviously. Mm. But, in uh, you know, the, the, the series is what uh, a cameraman sees, me doing my interviews. It's then edited. That, that edit is all done without me. I don't get involved in that. So what comes out is, is the director's cut, if you like. And the book is my cut, is my own um, diary of, mm. of the filming. And, of course, a lot of times when you can't actually, um, you know, can't use the camera, it's put away or, or it's night or something like that. So describing being in this great big sort of uh, 
communal hut right up in the north and wanting to go for a pee in the middle of the night and not being able to find the door and then seeing a, you know, a great wild boar staring at you out of the bushes. That is all stuff. Fortunately, the camera was not able to take me at that time. <laughs> Nigel, Nigel was asleep in his hammock. So, but I could describe that in the book and, and so it gives the book an extra dimension to the, to the series, yeah. Well, you're going to do a couple of readings for us. Um, and I, is, I, this, is this favourite... Few fa I mean, it must be hard to pick sort of favourite moments yeah, from the book. It, it, it's quite difficult, but I'm going to try and get this um, first one here, if I can get it up. Oh, hello. This is from the north. Oh, there we are. Um, this is in um, uh, the people I've just described, the Wajia people, um, who you saw at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And what I, you know, I got up some things there. Quite interesting. Um, because Emmy, the anthropologist, was very good. She, she got me to do things that people wouldn't normally do. So, um, the men had gone off. Instead of hunting and fishing, I spend the rest of the morning watching how their most staple food, manioc, is prepared. It's grown in the gardens around the camp and can be harvested at any time of year. The women dig the tubers up and bring them to an open-sided, thatched kitchen where the brown-skinned, foot-long tubers are painstakingly transformed into pancakes. There's much suppressed mirth today because I'm going to be helping them out and men just don't do this sort of work. I'm put onto peeling first and given what looks like a shallow metal dish with which to scrape away the husk. It's quite satisfying work. Soon I've a pile of ivory white, freshly stripped lengths of manioc beside me. I'm promoted to grating now. Although I didn't know it at the time, this is rich in comic potential. I'm sat, legs apart, in front of a rectangular metal grill and shown how to grasp the manioc tuber firmly and then to push backwards and forwards in a regular rhythm <laughs> until it's whittled away. This I do to mounting smiles and laughter and I like to think a certain muted admiration. The more energetically I grate, the more they urge me on. It's perhaps just as well it's only after I finish that I realise that manioc grating and the sexual act are very similar. <laughs> Such is my entertainment value that I move swiftly on to the next stage of the process. This involves breaking down the hard manioc powder after which I'm led to the fire and shown how to spread this powder onto a red-hot pan without scorching the tips of my fingers. Not an easy task, as there's a draught coming through causing the smoke to billow back in my face so my eyes are running. I can barely see what I'm doing. This is the highlight of the gringo cooking demonstration and is met not with concern for the welfare of my fingers but with renewed hoots of laughter. Emmy explains as kindly as she can, they say that if the smoke gets in your eyes, it's a sign your wife is with another man. So there we are. Yeah. <laughs> but I have to say, I was quite successful. In the end, one of them did say to Emmy um, that they thought I'd make um, them a very good husband. Uh, and there was a slight pause for the older women. So I, I know my place. Laughter seems to be a universal language. You know, wherever you seem to go, the, the, you know, the, there's language barriers there, obviously. Yeah. But, but there always seems to be a common ground. I mean, there's a, a beautiful scene of you reading to two little yeah. young boys. Yes. You know, and they probably have no idea what, what you're saying to them, but... They're absolutely captivated by... Yeah, well, they like being engaged in something. They like listening to somebody. You know, that's the thing. They're, 
uh, well, it's part of the life there. It's a very different way of life to our own. We're always rushing everywhere. We're always busy. We're always either on mobiles or we're ringing somebody up. Or there, they don't have all that. Mm. They just have their life in the rainforest. And you can say, well, is it a waste of their time? Should they be doing more? Should they be more productive? They're very productive. They, they make their buildings, they make their food, they live extremely well together. Um, but, you know, the, the, the thing is that they, they have plenty of time. Mm. So when someone comes from outside, you know, a whitey like me and sits there with a big book, they were just interested in the book. It happened to be pictures of uh, a Brazilian explorer called Rondon and um, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, the American president, who was quite an adventurer himself. And he came out to Brazil and was one of the earliest explorers of, that, of this part of, uh, remote part of Brazil in the north. And so they named a river after him, the, the um, um, Roosevelt River. And yeah. he brought his, his, his uh, son, who was called Kermit. Um, yeah, exactly, well before the Muppets. Um, <laughs> And there's a, a little, a much smaller river called Kermit River, which I didn't see. I'd love to have just gone for a bit of a paddle in the River Kermit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Will you read us another one? Tell us about the I'll next one. Um, Here we are. Extract this is, we are. Oops. This is the northeast. There we are. Um, this is a, a, a big, there's a big thing in Brazil is beach culture because the beaches are so stunning and wonderful. I mean, you know, they are, I, I, I just find them unbelievable. The space, the firmness of the sand, the fact they're all clean and washed all the time. But also that Brazilians spend a lot of time on the beach. Um, there's very much a beach culture. And um, in a place called San Luis, I was taken by um, Augusto, who's this rather serious 35-year-old school teacher, to show me a bit about beach culture. Um, I learned from Augusto that girl watching <laughs> rather like train spotting, is an activity engaged in largely by adolescent boys. I'd seen some of them at the cafes up by the road, passing around a pair of binoculars as they scanned the beach like na naval officers looking for U-boats. Augusto, a little bashfully, for he's 36 now, reveals that girl-watching has its own vocabulary of fruity metaphors. On Brazilian beaches, the buttocks are the most admired parts of the female form, and they're referred to as melones, melons. If the girl has a big bum, why call her melon woman? Watermelon woman if she has big hips. And if she has good shape, pear woman. <laughs> Beauty criteria are always interesting. And I'm fascinated to hear from Augusto that it's the strap marks from a bikini that drive Brazilian boys wild. All the girls in San Luis like working out to wear bikinis and to go out at night to the reggae and show the shadow. The more marks on a shoulder, the more desirable is the bearer considered. Equally curious are the number of women to be seen on the beach applying white soapy solution to their arms and legs. This is apparently a form of bleach which will turn the hairs blonde. Taking all this in at the end of the day over prawn empanadas, a plate of carne de sol, dry cured beef, and a couple of caipirinhas, I reflect on English versus Brazilian attitudes to the beach. For us, it's a luxury. For them, it's a necessity. Thank wow, you. I love that. What What were the things that surprised you about Brazil that you discovered? Were the things that you you kind of come away not expecting or? Um, it's, um, a number of things. What one really is that they um, they've changed. The country has changed enormously. I think in the last fifteen years, I couldn't really believe seeing the general and feeling the general feeling of prosperity. 
and certainly, you know, the mineral wealth going out and, and the, the, revenue, the income coming in. But 15 years ago, in the mid-1990s, inflation was over 2,000%. It was really a basket case economically. And it's changed so it's changed so rapidly. It's almost unbelievable that you could turn a country around so quickly. Mm. I think, you know, George Osborne should go over there and find <laughs> get a few um, melon women. Uh, no, I mean, uh, sorry, a few ideas about the budget. But the other thing is that also I think attitudes have changed a lot. And I went on this gay pride march because it happened to be taking place in Rio the day I got there. And they said, would I be a guest on the transvestites and transsexuals bus. <laughs> you don't get those going up and down Regent Street, I tell you. But anyway, I said, yes, that's fine. And I was told by the organiser that 20 years ago, when they first started, there were 28 people went on a gay pride march and they had insults thrown at them, rotten, rotten fruit. Um, 20 years on, mm. they had nearly a million people going up the beach, a huge celebration of, of, of gay culture and gay life. Absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, you know, no aggression. The police were barely yeah. a presence there. And that's quite, again, it's quite extraordinary what's changed in 20 years. So I think it's really the potential pace of change in a country like Brazil that really surprised me. If they can do that in 20 years, what are they going to be able to do in the next you know, six years or so. Yeah. Um, by which time we'll all be watching the World Cup there, we'll be seeing this country, we'll be wanting to sort of hug a Brazilian and... Uh, I'm sorry, a Brazilian person, I have to be careful <laughs> yeah. what I say. Um, Melons. And, uh, yeah. You know, and, <laughs> and then go to, go to the Olympics. I, uh, I, I mean, they've got a lot of work to do. There are favelas where a lot of poor people live and conditions aren't great and there's still a lot of crime. Mm -hmm. But that's being approached, that's being dealt with. And if, as I say, if they can do what they've done in 20 years, what, what more can they, will they do in the yeah. next six years or so? Yeah. Can we have another, another reading? I thought you were going to ask me that. <laughs> Are you sure you wouldn't just like to talk? Yeah, I've, well, if, you yeah. Did, if you'd rather not, we can throw some questions out to our audience. No, this is, um, here we go. This is on the uh, piranha hunting, piranha oh, fishing. I want to ask you, yeah, about that All after. right, yeah. Actually, I've probably, well, I could tell you about it. That's much more fun. Um, on the, the Pantanal is a wonderful wetland area in southern Brazil, absolutely fantastic in the southwest. Um, and um, we, we were taken, I was taken on a sort of wildlife trip up this river. And they have strange animals like capybaras, which claim to fame is the largest rodent um, in the world. And it looks really miserable. It looks so. I know I'm the largest rodent. I'd far rather be a bear or, a, you know, a lion but I'm the largest <laughs> rodent. And if you look at it for long, it gets very embarrassed and <laughs> slips into the water. <laughs> so the capybaras are also these, these extraordinary um, uh, caiman, the alligators, mm. on, the, uh, uh, on the bank. And there are so many of them, after a bit, you, you, know, you, you lose any fear of them. They're not moving, they're all there, with their mouths open. And they stay like that for a very long time because it's part of their me metabolism to get the air in and all that. Anyway, he tell, this, my guide says, I'm going to um, give you a line and a hook and you're going to catch piranha fish. I thought, this, it's usually the other way around, you know, sort of <laughs> piranha eats man. But no, man gets piranha. And I eventually pulled one out of the water after a few goes. And he then says, I'm going to make you some piranha sashimi. 
He said, have you had piranha sashimi? I said, look, I'm, I'm from Sheffield. You know, <laughs> baked beans were a delicacy when I grew up. Piranha sashimi, you can pull the other one. Um, so he made this very delicate, he gutted the fish, took the innards out, and he gave them to me and he said, just um, throw them in the water. I thought, all right, you know, is that ecologically sound? No, just throw them in the water. I threw them and one of these came and came out, whoomph, just like that. You know, it'd been still all day long, 16 hours, it hadn't moved. And then suddenly, boom, and it caught this innards of the piranha in midair and went under the water. Anyway, so then, then he, he sliced it up and had this really, really lovely... Um, what did it taste like? Chicken. <laughs> no, no, it didn't. It tasted a bit, it tasted like marlin or something like that. You know, it was, yeah. quite, a, it was, it was quite a strong taste, but very, very, very pleasant. I mean, you know, he'd done all the wasabi with it and all that, so mm. it was... I just thought it was great, you know. Piranha eaten by man. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Stripped by man, yeah. It was, it was a really brilliant sequence because you were kind of a little bit dubious about getting so close to a piranha. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Not to day. mention the alligators. <laughs> yeah. The next day I was swimming in the, in the water with the alligator just nearby. I'd lost all fear. Wow. They said they won't, they won't attack you. They're just, you know, they'll... they'll you smell the piranha. I, I'm a bit of a dummy in that way. I always believe what people tell me. <laughs> um, it's like the Pink River Dolphin. I did a swam with the Pink River Dolphin, these things with great big sharp teeth and beaks. And I thought, oh, lovely, you know, nice little dolphins. And later I heard that even David Attenborough, you know, thinks they're <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> there was I think, oh, lovely things. They weren't <laughs> aggressive, but they were blind and, and you know, so they were... They were eating sardines, yeah. and I just had my little shorts on, and they were <laughs> under there nipping around like that. I said, "I hope they don't get one of my don't get too close. The other bits, <laughs> fingers." I meant. Yeah. <laughs> um, we'd love to get some questions from our, yeah. our audience, if that's great. So we have a couple of Roman microphones. So if you have a question, stick your hand up, and we'll get a microphone to you. Who would like to go first? Gentleman in the front here, please. Michael, if you could retrace one of the journeys you've done over the years, which one would you do? That's a very interesting question, actually, if I had to retrace a journey. Um, that's a really, really difficult one. I think probably the journey from North Pole to South Pole, only because um, it's quite a long time ago now that we did it. And in 1991, and the world was, it was an extraordinary year of change. And we started off from the North Pole down through northern Norway. And when we went, um, you know, across from um, Finland, across to what, what is now Estonia, it was still the Soviet Union. So we, we traveled down through Estonia, through what is now Ukraine, um, and then it was all part of the Soviet Union. And I remember talking to a guy we met on the train near Kiev, and he said, I'm, I'm from Ukraine. Um, but, you know, one, we, we, we want our own land back. And I said, will you get that? And he said, well, one day, you know, maybe not in my lifetime, maybe not in my children's lifetime, but one day we will have our independent Ukraine. And we set off across the Black Sea, and I hadn't gone far. I was going down through Egypt, and I read in the paper that the Soviet Union had begun to collapse. And by December, by December, four months after we'd been through it, there was an independent Ukraine. And this was just amazing. And then going down through Ethiopia, they did, had this uh, dictator called Mengistu for a long time who was much disliked and feared. And an army of young kids, really, from the north, people 17, 18-year-olds, had got rid of this 
dictator and there's a kind of wonderful euphoria in the country that, of liberation. It was an amazing, amazing feeling. These people had nothing really, but they got rid of their, the dictatorship. And then we went on down and through Zimbabwe where, um, Zambia, sorry, where Kenneth Kaunda um, was one of the first post-colonial leaders and, and he just lost an election. And it was all happening so fast. What I'd love to do now is retrace that journey and see how the places have changed, how they've, uh, what, what life is like there still, and if it's very, very different. Because, I mean, at that time, Zimbabwe, Zambia was a basket case, and Zimbabwe was a very successful country. Um, so, um, you know, now maybe things have changed. So that's the one I'd love to do again. I'm not quite sure I'd like to go to the South Pole again. That <laughs> is really, really uncomfortable. <laughs> I don't recommend it. And it's like a car park there. It's not even, you know, a beautiful bit of snow with a pole in it. You know, there's a huge sort of builder's yard there because the, there's an American base there. You go underground and they're all sort of eating blueberry pie and listening to Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> and they've only got shorts on. You know, the pole. I, and we weren't allowed to go in for long. We had to go up and go into our tent up in the, on the surface where it was minus 40 degrees. They wouldn't even let you stay under there. No, no. They're not allowed to unless you're a bona fide scientist. They're not allowed to let you in to the base. Well, they can give you, you can come in for a coffee. Then you've got to go out again. And we, we put our tent up on the, and it was, God, it was so cold. And there were about 10 of us in the tent and I slept across the, the, um, the entrance to the tent for some strange reason, probably the last to get, get the position. And there was one guy at the back who, who obviously had an incontinence problem. And so, Continually through the night, so, uh, coming towards me, saying, boom, and he would bash his foot on the side of my head, and then he'd come back, bang, on the side of my head. Sorry. So um, that, it was really uncomfortable. I, I know what Scott, Captain Scott, meant. Um, we've got more questions, please. Uh, gentleman at the back there. Uh, hi, Michael. Uh, hi. Really enjoyed watching all your travel programmes, seeing you visit all these amazing places. Thank um, you. Have you ever thought about taking a trip into space on one of the... Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic Services, maybe, and seeing <laughs> no. these places from a different perspective. You know, I, I just worry about going up to Stoke-on-Trent on <laughs> Richard Branson's galactic <laughs> travel, let alone outer space. Um, no, I'm actually not terribly interested in going uh, into outer space. I have to say, it's an odd thing, but, I mean, I, I feel I'd love to see the Earth from space, but it's not top priority. I'd very much like to keep my feet on the ground. I think I'd feel a bit nervous tossing around out there. I have been asked. There, there's, um, I think it was pre-Branson. There was a, a Russian, um, uh, Russian spacecraft they wanted to bring into use as a, as a for tourists. And would I? They said, would I be the first one to go there? Just show what it was like. I said, no, thanks. <laughs> Thank you very much. No, no, I'll be the 450th. Um, no, I'm not without curiosity about. I'm sure it'd be brilliant. And, and you look at those amazing stories of the first astronauts and when they saw the Earth, how moved they became. And, and I'd love to see that. But um, as I say, it's not, I'd rather, you know, I'd rather go to um, Lapland <laughs> first. <laughs> um, was, a, was there a lady here at her hand up? Was it, no? Okay. There's a gentleman at the front here. Hi, Michael. Uh, Hi. As a Brazilian, I oh. just wanted to say that I was really, really pleased with the show Thank because you. you were able to get away a little bit from the stereotypes that most people always think about Brazil is just samba and football. You, you covered that as well. Yes. Yeah. But I think as, 
I've learned so much because I'm from Sao Paulo and I don't know anything oh, right. about my country yeah. when I haven't been to so many places that where yes. you've been. Yeah. So I just wanted to say that was really Thank good you. work. And uh, if you could move that, where would you like to leave out of all those places that you met, you've been to? I quite like Bahia. Um, I, I just, when we were in, um, I don't think it's in the program, it's in the book. We were in Bahia, which is Salvador, um, a very vibrant city, made more of an impact on me, I think, than any of the others in Brazil. It's just so unlike anywhere I'd ever been. Um, and uh, uh, there's a part of Bahia where they, they, they built these wonderful new uh, modern houses. I mean, not big houses, but beautifully done. And you've got some very good architects and designers. Um, and they built it on top of the hill where the, the wind just came over the hill and, and cooled the whole house. There was no sort of artificial heating or cooling, um, no air con or anything like that. And they'd just done it absolutely beautifully. And there was water also. There were kind of little, um, little pools of water incorporated into the house. So that cooled it as well. Absolutely fantastic bit of design. I thought I could live there. I'm very, very happy to live there. Um, next question. Down the front here, please. Hello, Michael. Hello, Hello. Edith. Hi. Um, obviously, I've been watching your documentaries for quite a few years. Yeah. And so, having travelled to many parts of the world, you've obviously had to eat many interesting things. Yes, I have eaten some very so, interesting things. As a question, <laughs> two, well, you have a part A and a part B. Part A, what's, what interesting thing would you bring back and serve for Christmas. Oh, right. <laughs> and part B, which interesting thing would you serve for Christmas for your worst enemy? <laughs> good double part. Oh, okay, like good. This is very complicated. Well, <laughs> Christmassy feel, I like that. Yes, Christmas theme. Well, I had a meal of insects in Mexico City, um, which is absolutely delicious. And I think that at Christmas, you know, there's a tendency to eat too much. So I'd probably serve people insects. Now, they're all done in beautiful <laughs> sauce. They're kind of barbecued or whatever they do with, it, with insects. I would get this particular restaurant that specialised in pre-Hispanic food because so much of the food in, in Mexico and Latin America came over from Europe. But before that, the Aztec and Incas, Aztec people particularly, um, ate insects. And so we had lovely grasshoppers, crispy grasshopper. Fantastic. That'd be great for Christmas. My worst enemy, well, I did eat something once in China, which I didn't know what it was. Um, Does uh, that make it easier sometimes? You almost tell them not yes. to tell you what it is, yeah, so no, that you no. will eat it. Yeah, in this particular case, <laughs> as you will gather, I'm glad I didn't know. <laughs> and they're very nice. And when you go to China, they're, they're very, well, like everywhere in the world, but they're very welcoming, but eating is very, very important. And if you're with a group of visitors, you are highly, um, you know, honoured guests. And the... The main man gets the main dish. So I got this, everyone got something sort of brown, and I got something brown and rather tough. Uh, anyway, I ate it, and at the end, I was walking away, and the cameraman, Nigel, said to me, Yeah, yeah that's great, you know. I said, What? It's great, you eating that. Eating what? Eating that bull's penis. And, and I said, oh, I didn't know. Bull's penis, was it? Yeah. yeah. So I, I can say on my CV that <laughs> I've eaten bull's penis. Um, bull was dead. I want you to be clear about that. But that's something 
That's something I would serve um, for Christmas <laughs> to my worst enemy. But I don't have any enemies, I hope. Uh, gentlemen at the back there, please. Uh, how best can we preserve the planet for future generations? Well, I don't how know. Long probably, have you got? Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but there are rather a lot of us, really, um, trying to fill the space and, and eat the food on the planet. Um, and I, I mean, I, I, well, it's interesting because in Brazil, they, they feel that they, by, by cultivating the food and using the land well, they could actually feed the whole planet. I mean, there are possibilities to increase growth of food. And in Brazil, they say they could do that without destroying um, the rainforest. They could still make better use of the vast um, field agricultural areas, very fertile areas, to grow food. Um, but I, I mean, I think the best thing that we can do is, is make less of an impact um, on, on the world, you know, f to produce things that we perhaps don't always need. I think that we tend to have too many things and going to the rainforest, I can see the people there survive well and have survived for 2,000 years because they've taken just what the rainforest can give them. And I think we have to be very careful and assess what the world can give us um, without it being destroyed and without us reducing um, the, you know, the general stock of, of, of food and, and forests and minerals and all those things. So that, I think we've just got to guard and conserve well. Um, and, and that's why it's quite, quite exciting times. I think there are people working very, very hard now to find alternatives to fossil fuel, um, to find alternatives to, you know, the internal combustion engine and all that. I, I don't, I'm an optimist. I don't think it's beyond the wit of man to find ways of treating the Earth better than we do at the moment. Um, and last question for me. Um, what's next? I imagine you're having some time off till Christmas and then is there another adventure planned for next year? Um, no, I, I don't really have a, a, a kind of list of things I've, I'm going to do. It, it, it usually comes up out of the blue. I mean, this Brazil trip, I wasn't going to do that. We did um, New Europe, which I, I really felt, well, that's going to be the last journey because it was a, the, the last of all the continents. So we've done seven continents. That's the time to stop. Um, and I started to write a novel, actually, which I published earlier this year called The Truth. Um, and then, I'd say, the Brazil idea just came out of that field. I thought, I've got to go, you know, as, as I said at the beginning, lots of things are going to happen there. People are going to be talking about this place. So it just uh, came out of the blue, and somewhere curiosity? else will come out of the blue. Well, I'm still curious. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I really am. I, I, and I'm also quite restless, strangely enough, although I stay at home, as you know, because we used to live ne next door to each other. I stay at home for long periods of time and have a very nice, happy home life. But um, I, I, do, I, do, I, I do feel that Can't urge, sit still for that too urge long. to look at the, over the horizon. Well, can we have a huge round of applause for Michael? Thank you. Thank you very much.